0: Well, we are in 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 10 tonight. We've made it to chapter 10. We'll be looking at the first 13 verses of this chapter tonight. So find 1 Corinthians 10, and let's stand together. Let's read it. Verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud, And in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things As they also craved, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play, nor let us act immorally as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you. But such is as common to man, and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you may be able to endure it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your wonderful word. We thank you for the instruction that you have given to us that we can uh, live by, and Lord, uh, we pray that we would um, firmly grasp this principle that you are giving to us uh, here in these chapters that we need to uh, learn to limit our liberty and that uh, we need to consider others uh, before ourselves. And Lord, we know that that's uh, ultimately uh, only by your grace as we die to self and uh, think of others first. And so, Lord, we pray that you would uh, work in our hearts and minds that we would be uh people that uh, practice these principles in our lives. So, Lord, again, tonight we thank you for an opportunity to worship. We thank you for a church family where we can uh, uh, love and care for one another. And, Lord, again, we we lift up uh, this great need tonight uh, uh, for uh, your grace, for Molly and Gary and uh, the rest of the family. And, uh, Lord, we pray that uh, you would sustain them. But Lord, uh, be with us tonight as we uh, worship and as we focus on you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we've been dealing with the principle of limiting our liberty now for several weeks. And in chapter 8, Paul sets forth the principle that although Christians are free to do whatever Scripture does not forbid, as long as it's not morally wrong, that if we love as God has called us to love, we will limit our liberty for the sake of weaker brothers. In chapter 9, he illustrated this limitation of liberty from his own life. To keep from giving them reason to think that he was preaching to gain financially he accepted no wages from those to whom he was ministering. He also modified and adapted his own lifestyle in whatever ways were scripturally permissible in order to become more a more effective witness for Christ. And we saw that last time. In the second half of chapter 8 and all of chapter 9, we see... How he illustrates the using of our freedom and how that affects others. Chapter 10 illustrates how our use of freedom affects our own lives. And in verses 1 through 13, Paul shows us how misuse of liberty can disqualify us from effective service to Christ. The Corinthians were in danger of falling into sin, but they did not realize it. Overconfidence can be a very dangerous thing. The Corinthians felt perfectly secure in their Christian lives. They were saved, baptized, well-taught, lacking in no spiritual gifts, and presumably mature. They thought they were strong enough to freely associate with pagans in their ceremonies and social activities and not be affected morally or spiritually. As long as they did not participate in outright idolatry or immorality, so they thought, they were in good shape. But Paul tells them they are deceiving themselves. He explains to them that, The mature, loving Christian does not try to stretch his liberty to the extreme to see how close to evil he can get without being harmed. Folks, listen, when a Christian becomes so confident in his strength that he thinks he can handle any situation, he is overconfident and in great danger of falling And the warning here is summarized in verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. The danger is not, of course, falling from salvation, but of falling from holiness and from usefulness in service. The liberty that Christ gives is not license to flirt with sin. And if you get too close to the fire... You may get burned. I heard about a little boy who was caught in the pantry looking up at the cookies. And his mother asked, what are you doing? He said, I'm resisting temptation. Of course, that is not the best way to fight temptation. Amen? You don't put yourself in front of it and then hope for the best. And Paul points to Israel in this passage as an illustration of this. Now, we read the text a few minutes ago, but let's go through this. In verses 1 through 4, he gives us the perks of spiritual freedom. The perks of spiritual freedom. Look with me at verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. The word for ties this back to Paul's fear of disqualification mentioned at the end of chapter 9. The phrase our fathers includes both Jewish and Gentile believers, although we might think it only applies to physical Israel. Because that's his illustration here. John MacArthur wrote, all Hebrews were physical descendants of Abraham. But to truly be God's children, they had to also be his spiritual descendants. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, Paul wrote in Romans 9. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded. As descendants. He said, Abraham was the father of all the faithful. And in this sense, Paul's reference to our fathers here could be addressed to Gentile as well as Jewish Christians, for they, in fact, are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. They are spiritual descendants for all who believe. And by the way, notice that the word all is used five times in the first four verses. This emphasizes the oneness of Israel. But Paul gives us here three perks or benefits that Israel received. First of all, there was liberation from Egypt. All their fathers passed under the cloud and through the sea. And this, of course, is a reference to the exodus from Egypt. That event was a touchstone of Jewish religion and became a symbol of new covenant salvation. And yet, even after experiencing such great deliverance, Israel misused their freedom and ultimately became disqualified. And they did this by falling into idolatry, immorality, and rebelliousness. So Paul is saying, don't let what happened to the nation of Israel happen to you. Secondly, there's a, there's a second perk, which was baptism into Moses. Baptism into Moses. Not only liberation from Egypt, but baptism into Moses. Look at verse 2. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, ordinarily, baptism refers to water baptism, the ceremony in which water is used to symbolize cleansing from sin. And many Christians here interpret this phrase, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, as a reference to water baptism. And they then take it to mean that The people were sprinkled by the rain from the cloud, or they were immersed while passing through the sea. Which is kind of interesting, because none of that happened. But the Greek word baptizo can have more than 20 different meanings. And J. Vernon McGee wrote, Don't try to tell me that Moses had a baptismal service at the Red Sea and baptized them, because actually they did not get wet at all. They went over on dry land, right? The basic meaning of baptizo here is to identify with. And the basic Christian significance for water baptism is identification with Christ. As Paul later explains in Romans 6, verses 1 through 10, water baptism is an outward sign of spiritual union with Christ in his death death burial, and resurrection. Is the idea of spiritual identification rather than the physical ceremony. And I believe that's what Paul has in mind in this present passage. The Israelites were baptized into Moses in the sense that they identified with him as the Lord's appointed leader over them. And obviously, when it says they were baptized into Moses, he's not talking about being baptized with water. Neither is it the baptism of the Holy Spirit, because it says they were baptized into Moses. It simply means they became identified with Moses. Now, a third perk was spiritual sustenance. God provided for their every need in the wilderness. Look at verse 3. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now the phrase spiritual rock was something that became a popular legend In ancient Israel. And it was something that was still known and believed in Paul's day. The legend was that the actual rock that Moses struck followed Israel all through her wilderness travels, providing water everywhere they went. So, what is this about here? I believe the Apostle Paul was alluding to this legend, and in essence is saying, yes, a rock did indeed follow Israel in the wilderness. But it wasn't a physical rock that merely provided physical water. It was a spiritual rock, the Messiah, which is the Hebrew term for Christ, whom you have long awaited who was with your fathers even then. And that supernatural rock protected and sustained them all through the wilderness. Yes, in fact, there was a rock, but that rock was Christ himself. But we have a second aspect given by Paul here. In verses 5 through 10, he gives us the perversion of spiritual freedom the perversion of spiritual freedom. Look with me at verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. All Israel shared in the common blessings of liberty and sustenance in the wilderness. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. Now, that phrase, most of them, is an understatement. Of the entire great number of Israelites who left Egypt, only two, Joshua and Caleb, were allowed to enter the promised land. All the rest of them were laid low in the wilderness. Even Moses and Aaron were disqualified from entering the promised land. Why? Because of disobedience. Wow. Even Moses? That's right. Because of disobedience, all but two of the Israelites were laid low in the wilderness. Now the word for laid low there is an interesting word. It's katastronomai. It literally means to strow or to spread over. And the idea here is The corpses of those with whom God was not pleased were strewn all over the wilderness. That's a vivid term. All Israel had been graciously blessed. They had been liberated from Egypt. They had been sustained by the Lord himself, the rock in the wilderness. But in that race, as the author of Hebrews says... In that test of obedience and service, most of them were disqualified. They misused and abused their freedom and their blessings. And in self-centeredness and self-will, they tried to live on the edge of their liberty and they fell into temptation and then into sin. Overconfidence was their undoing. Well, what exactly did they do to become disqualified? Verse 6. Now, these things happened as examples to us, that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. What's the answer? They craved evil things. And we can read about that in Numbers chapter 11. In fact, turn with me to Numbers 11 for just a moment. Numbers chapter 11. Numbers 11. Look at verse 4. It says, And the rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish, which we used to eat free in Egypt, and the cucumbers, and the melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. You say, what's the big deal here? Why is it wrong to, to crave the stuff they used to have in Egypt? Well, basically, this amounts to being dissatisfied with God's provision. And it was to desire something outside of God's will. What is the application then for Christians today? Here's the application. A controlled body is useful to the Lord, but an indulged one is not. A controlled body is useful to the Lord, an indulged one is not. The the Christian who controls his body and his lifestyle is qualified to serve the Lord, but the one who indulges his body and is careless in his lifestyle can become disqualified. What kind of things did Israel flirt with? Paul lists them for us. First, there is idolatry. Back to 1 Corinthians 10, look at verse 7. and And do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. The Israelites, as you know, were hardly outside the land of Egypt before they fell into idolatry. There were no pagan priests, no temples, no idols to lure them like there were in Egypt, but they managed to make their own idols and improvise their own ceremonies. Exodus 32 gives us the account, and you know the story. Moses went up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments from God, And while he was there, the people concluded he was not coming back, and so they enticed Aaron to make them a god. And Aaron took their gold that they had plundered from the Egyptians and fashioned a calf, and they worshipped the calf. Now, how does this apply to the Corinthians? Well, just like Israel, many of the Corinthian Christians who were overconfident in their own moral and spiritual strength, had become careless about their participation in activities where false gods were worshipped, consulted, or appealed to. And they believed that they could be associated with such pagan activities without being spiritually harmed. Some of the believers or professed believers in Corinth had actually slipped back into idolatry. And we read about that in chapter 5, verse 11. Others were in danger of doing the same thing. And again, flirting with idolatry can be a dangerous thing. It is the same today when we think we can go to worldly places and be involved in worldly activities and not be Tempted to fall into sin. Now, quoting Exodus thirty two, verse six, Paul continues. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. The eating and drinking refer to the excessive feasting that followed the sacrifices. The word play here is a euphemism for sexual relations. It means sexual play and is the same word that is translated caressing in Genesis 26, 8. Listen, folks, idolatry often leads to immorality, which is the next perversion of freedom. And by the way, not all idols are physical idols. They do not have to be made of wood, stone, or metal Any concept of God that is not biblical is false, and if believed and followed, can become an idol. And those who follow man-made gods may claim that they are worshiping the true God of the Bible in the same way that the Israelites claimed that they were worshiping Yahweh as they were worshiping the calf, but no false god has anything in common with the true God of the Bible. Churches and philosophies have developed that virtually make gods of success, love, social service, self-image, or simply mankind. But this is nothing less than idolatry. Anything that takes our first loyalty and allegiance other than the true God is an idol. And many people who would not take a second glance at a carved idol will sacrifice health, time, family, moral standards, and anything else required in order to achieve the idol of success or recognition or whatever idol they're chasing. Another thing they flirted with was sexual immorality. Look at verse 8 nor let us act immorally, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. This is apparently referring to Exodus 32 as well. But there is another incident that is recorded in Numbers 25 that fits as well. While in the wilderness, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. That's Numbers 25, verse 1. Verse 2 says, For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. This time, the Bible tells us 24,000 Israelites were slain because of this orgy. And so Paul applies this to Corinth. Idolatry and sexual immorality are often went hand-in-hand in in that day and location. And Corinth was filled with this kind of thing. Just as most social occasions there involved some form of idolatry, so they also involved some form of sexual immorality. And it is clear from Paul's warning that the self-confident Corinthian believers we no more immune to immorality than they were to idolatry. Is that any different than Christians today who say, listen, I can watch anything I want on TV and it won't hurt me. It won't affect me spiritually. Listen, immorality is to be fled, not flirted with. And many Christians fall into moral problems simply because they are overconfident in themselves. They enter into and continue relationships that may not be wrong in themselves, but which offer strong temptations to compromise morally. And when the temptations come, they think they can handle it, but often they find out too late they can't. Well, there's a third way in which they perverted their freedom, and that was through trying God. Trying God. Look at verse 9. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. This account is given in Numbers 21. God provided manna for the people to eat and water for them to drink, but the people were not satisfied. They wanted more variety and spice. They complained and complained, questioning God's goodness and trying his patience. They had no concern for pleasing God, only for pleasing themselves. And Christians sometimes use their freedom to push God to the limit, trying to see how much they can get out of him and how much they can get by with before he punishes them. You know, all of us as parents know what this can be like with our children. I mean, some kids just push their parents to the limits. You know what I'm talking about. And in the same way, we often do that with God. We know God is a God of mercy, so we push him to the limit of that mercy. And many of the Corinthians were pushing their, limit, their liberty to the limit as well. They were trying to see how much of the flesh they could indulge and how much of the world they could enjoy without going too far with God. They were risking severe discipline from the Lord. And we know that in the Old Testament, God punished the rebellious people by sending fiery serpents into the camp to bite them. And this is... Symbolic of the chastening of the Lord in the New Testament. But the point is that spiritual freedom is not given to us for us to play on the mercy of God. We're not to pervert our spiritual freedom into sinful self-indulgence. But there's one last thing that Paul mentions that they were guilty of, and that is complaining. Complaining. Look at verse 10. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. This example is from Numbers 16. After Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and their fellow rebels were destroyed by the Lord, Numbers 16.41 tells us, On the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled Against Moses and Aaron, saying, You are the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. And God was so incensed at their complaints about divine justice that He immediately sent a plague that killed 14,700 people. The destroyer was the same angel who had slain the firstborn of the Egyptians before Israel left Egypt in Exodus 12, 23. This is also the same angel that would kill 70,000 men because of David's census in 2 Samuel 24, verses 15 and 16. The destroyer. God sent the destroyer against them. Folks, Listen. Grumbling is voicing dissatisfaction with God's will for our lives. God does not take that lightly. And in contrast to that, Paul, as we saw this morning, had learned to be content in whatever circumstances he found himself. And that's, of course, Philippians 4.11. He advises the Corinthians to have the same kind of contentment lest they suffer God's discipline. So we've seen the perks of spiritual freedom. We've seen the perversion of spiritual freedom. Thirdly, we see the pitfalls of spiritual freedom. What happened to Israel was intended to be an example to the Corinthians and believers of all ages. Look at verse 11. Now, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. The word for instruction here means warning, warning. And the phrase ends of the ages refers to the age of redemption, the age of salvation, the church age that we now live in. We are living in a greatly different age from that of the Hebrews in the wilderness under Moses, but we can still learn a valuable lesson from their experience. And like them, we can forfeit our blessing, reward, and effectiveness in the Lord's service if, in our overconfidence and presumption, we take our liberties too far and fall into disobedience. And sin, We will not lose our salvation, but we can easily lose our virtue and our effectiveness. We can become disqualified in the race of the Christian life. And look again at the warning in verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Here is the danger of overconfidence. It is so easy to become enamored with our freedom in Christ that we forget we are his, bought with a price, and called to obedience to his word and his service. History is full of examples of the danger of overconfidence. Again and again, a fortress has been stormed, because its defenders thought it was impregnable. In Revelation 3.3, the risen Christ warns the church of Sardis to be on the watch. The Acropolis of Sardis was built on a jutting spur of a rock that was held to be impregnable. And when Cyrus was besieging it, he offered a special reward to any who could find a way in. A certain soldier, Herodias by name, was watching one day, and he saw a soldier of the Sardian garrison drop his helmet accidentally over the battlements. And he watched as the man climbed down a marked path, And retrieved it. That night, he led the troops up that exact path. And when they reached the top, they found it was completely unguarded. So they entered in and they captured the citadel, which had been counted so safe that it didn't need to be guarded. And, of course, the Bible points to many examples as well. Do you remember what Peter told uh, what Jesus told Peter before he denied him? And do you remember what Peter said? Peter said, "Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death." How did that work out? The history of Israel shows that Peter, that people who enjoy the greatest privileges of God are far from being safe from temptation. And in the same way, Paul warns the Corinthians, and he warns us that special privilege is no guarantee we won't fall into sin. Christians who become self-confident become less dependent on God's Word and God's Spirit and can become careless in their living. And as carelessness increases, Openness to temptation also increases and resistance to sin often decreases. When we think and feel the most secure in ourselves, when we think our spiritual life is the strongest and our doctrine is the soundest and our morals are the purest, we should be most on our guard and most dependent on the lord but paul gives us a word of encouragement here look at verse 13 no temptation has overtaken you but such as is as is common to man and god is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it and I of course could preach an entire sermon just on that one verse but let me just conclude with three lessons on temptation three lessons on temptation and these may be obvious but they're so uh, important number one temptation will come temptation will come you can count on it it will come the devil will make sure of that number two No temptation is unique. They're all common to man. Most of these temptations have been going on for all this history from creation. Thirdly, with every temptation, there is a way out. There is a way out. The Greek word here is very vivid. It's the word ekbasis. It means an escape from defilement. It is like a mountain pass. And the idea is that of an invading army that is apparently surrounded, but then suddenly an escape route is seen. There's always a way out. God always provides a way Escape. However, the way out is never the way of surrender or the way of retreat. It is always the way of conquest in the power and the grace of God. Well, let's not fall into the danger of overconfidence. Let's learn to trust God to take us safely through every temptation. And let's learn that we are always, continually, absolutely dependent on God for everything in the Christian life. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us to uh, apply this passage of Scripture tonight. That we would not fall into that danger of overconfidence. That we would uh, be people who live by faith and fully trust you in every regard. And Lord, uh, that you would keep us from sin help us not to fall into these these typical uh things that the Israelites fell into idolatry or that we might uh fall into uh grumbling and complaining and that that we might uh show dissatisfaction toward you in any way and lord that we would uh live in a way that would would continually pr- please you So, Lord, help us to apply these truths tonight to our lives, and we ask that in Christ's name, amen.